Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. Each week we explore a film we love and search for the scene at its center. It's Eye of the Duck. That's an idea we're borrowing from David Lynch. He says when you're studying a duck, You can look at the duck's bill, its feet, its feathers. But if you really want to get to know a duck, you have to look at its eye. In this podcast, we try to get to know a movie by its most essential scene. Welcome to Eye of the Duck. Adam, I want to paint a picture for you. Okay. This is a picture of me as a 10-year-old boy... Very early 2000s, (laughs) and my brother has just arrived home from China. He was in some performing arts, like all South Jersey, all state New Jersey Mm -hmm. jazz band thing. He came home from China, and he was bearing gifts. A bunch of them were bootleg DVDs that he had Uh, bought in China. Yes, the classic classic, uh, brother comes back from Asia story. (laughs) Yes. And some of the bootleg DVDs were legit. I mean, they like I think we had X-Men bootleg DVD totally worked. It was just a, a perfect bootleg. Mm-hmm. They were written in broken English and the synopses were like scrambled from different movies. Like there would yep. be like it was like Lord of the Rings, but it was a picture of Conan the Barbarian, but the synopsis on the back was like Indiana Jones. <laughs> it was it was amazing. But the DVD that 10-year-old Dom was most excited about was Spider-Man 2, which had not come out in theaters yet. And I was so excited because Spider-Man, the film you and I are talking about today, the film that means so much to both of us, Sam Mm -hmm. Raimi's Spider-Man, was easily my my favorite movie of all time at the time. Yeah. So seeing Spider-Man 2 on DVD, I was so excited. And so the picture I want to paint is of me sitting in the living room after the entire family has gone to bed, pressing play and stop and play and stop, trying to get this bootleg DVD of Spider-Man 2 to work. <laughs> it did not work. It was it was clearly just a Just a, 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 a blank DVD. This, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was convinced that that movie was on that disc Mm -hmm. and i spent hours not just that night but you know every night following trying to get that dvd to work (laughs) and anytime devastating story (laughs) yeah but anytime i think about sam raimi's spider-man i always think about that night of like it was such a formative experience of uh a movie that i had so much anticipation for that I refused to believe that I didn't have it in possession. Like I I could not accept (laughs) reality. (laughs) I I have a picture I can paint for you. Um, The year is probably 2004, 2005. I'm uh, sitting in my bedroom. It's after midnight. My entire family's gone to bed. I do not have a television in my bedroom. Um, I have an old 
PC with one of those shitty old CRT tube screens. And I desperately want to watch Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And so I dive into the seedier parts of the internet to try and find a version of the film I can I can download and watch, which was okay because I own it on DVD. So it's okay to have a, a digital, uh, quote, backup if you have it on DVD. Yes, and I, I finally find a copy of the film. It takes like two hours to download. So by this point, it's now like two in the morning. I'm exhausted. I'm like ruined. But I still, I'm just like, I have to watch this movie now because it was my mission to download it and watch it. And I start up the film. I'm basically delirious. And I something happens and I can't tell if my brain is playing tricks on me or if it's real. And the thing that happens is that every time Spider-Man shoots a web, I hear a fart noise. And every time the Green Goblin shoots like a pumpkin bomb or something, it makes a fart noise. And because I'm so tired and I've become so obsessed with trying to find a way to watch this film, I fully convince myself that my brain is playing tricks on me. And I just sit there until like four in the morning watching Spider-Man with fart noises. <laughs> so of course the next morning I wake up and I, I I click through the file to see did I make this up and no I, I I did not make this up someone took the time to edit in fart sounds throughout the entire runtime of this film upload it to a, a torrent website and not put any markers on it indicating that it was filled with fart noises so there exists a file somewhere in the the internet archive, which is the entire Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. But anytime he does any web stuff, a- it's a fart. Anytime the middle two fingers of his hand <laughs> touch his palm and webs shoot forth from his wrist, there is a fart noise. And I got to say, props to them. There were variable fart noises. It wasn't the same sound As effect every time. <laughs> this guy must have collected fart sounds. <laughs> You think he did them himself? Yeah, I like to imagine that he's a skilled Foley artist. And he was like, okay, I think for this one, need a little more squelch. And he, you know, he ate the right foods, put the microphone in the right place. And he curated a library of farts appropriate for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Well, f- from doing like comedy stuff that involves farts, like stage sketch comedy and also video st- sketch comedy... I'm intrigued by this because it's really hard to like pull off a good fart bit because fart sound effects are never as funny as real farts. I completely agree. There was this great SNL sketch, I think pretty recently, very simple premise where a guy was doing sit-ups and every time he did a sit-up, he farted. <laughs> and it was the sound effects were so well done. And as someone who has a vast catalog of fart sound effects because of <laughs> all the sketch comedy I've done, I was so fascinated by where they got those unique fart sounds. Because if you've done a little bit of sound effect stuff in film and in farts, you know that there's a very small amount of of, of of sounds that we all use when it really comes down to it. <laughs> and I then I got to see a behind the scenes video. I guess they put it on their YouTube or something. I happened to come across it and I saw that I think oh, I can't what who's the guy on Jimmy Fallon who's like his sideman? Higgins. Yes, Higgins. It was him. He was on mic live with his hands pressed to his face, doing live fart foley. Wow. And it blew my mind because I thought, like, that's how you do it. That's how, if you're going to do fart sounds, you got to do it live with live foley. So I think we've solved the mystery here. I think that Higgins, uh, 15 years ago, (laughs) put together a uh, live fart orchestra for Spider-Man and dumped it online without saying a word about it. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Okay, well, we're talking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man today, and 
as I hope has been established by now, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is about finding the scene that's at the core of the film that we're speaking about. So this is the first time I, I've really sat down and watched this film in full since I, I don't know how long. And I just wanted to make sure that we started off by just <laughs> accepting that this film starts with a voiceover narration <laughs> with Tobey Maguire saying, who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I got to I mean, not only like, like the whole opening VO, I mean, to be clear, we obviously like adore this film. The opening VO is, I think, the worst part of the of the whole movie. And it's or the best I or mean, the best. Is, I mean, the the the, th- the thing I really don't like about it is, I mean, it's fucking hilarious. But the thing <laughs> I don't love about it is that he go he he then follows it up by saying, you know, like most stories, this one's about a girl. <laughs> I'm just like, no, it isn't. <laughs> but let me assure you, this, like any story worth telling, is all about a girl. It sounds like like the <laughs> opening lines of like a short story that you would read in a creative writing class in like your freshman year of college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and then everyone I? just you sure dunks you on you. Know? <laughs> 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 but I think it's a great way to begin here because I think there's something so genuine feeling about this movie and it's yeah. complete acceptance of its like sincerity. Yeah, as well as sincerity is like the word. There is not a hint of irony in a single frame of this film. Yes, and I'm I'm glad that we agree on this because I made a point to revisit uh, Homecoming earlier today. I wanted to look at the Andrew Garfield one too because I don't think of that. Oh, I did see the first one. I don't remember it very well. But I think what's most relevant right now, of course, is this MCU stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can't really talk about the legacy of the Spider-Man character without also talking about his current state. Watching Homecoming again after this movie, I I still enjoy it and can understand the value of it. There is an air of smugness to the MCU. 100%. And there's a lot of criticism about, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and a lot of very smart writers have have taken the time to sort of unpack its effect on movies, on blockbuster movies, on, you know, film culture. the state culture. of cinema and theater going and the, you know. Yeah. The, you know, I don't, we, we, if, we, if we open this can of worms, it will become the whole show, so we can't do it, but yeah. I don't intend to do that, but I, I, it just all kind of clicked now, just watching Homecoming after seeing Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, because... I've never really been able to put my finger on what I love about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and what always kind of like doesn't like jive with me with the MCU. I mean, I've got a take, but I'm curious to hear what you're about to say. (laughs) Well, I think it clicked because watching Tom Holland and and Robert Downey Jr. interact in that movie, uh, I, I wrote down early in the movie when he interacts with Tony Stark, Tony Stark says, don't do anything I would do. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And I think that's like a a great line to look at of like, there is an inherent feeling of cynicism and smugness, especially to Robert Downey Jr. And I think that he imbued the whole cinematic universe with that quality. And it, it pervades that film, but it also pervades all of those movies. And Watching Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, I've never really been able to to understand like why this movie speaks to me and why it's such like a little gem from our past that I will like you know I'll always appreciate. And there's not there is no smugness at all. Like you yeah. said, it's it's a hundred percent sincerity. There's no it, it, irony. It wears its heart on its sleeve. You know, it knows exactly what it is, and I think even more importantly. Every actor in this film knows exactly what film this is. They know exactly what kind of film they're making. They all exist in the exact same world together, which really sells the whole thing. Yeah. I think that Sam Raimi 
and Tobey Maguire um, understand what's going on in this movie in such a unique and special way that the last time we saw the likes of that might have been Tim Burton's Batman. That mm-hmm. the, the performance that Tobey Maguire gives in this film, maybe one of the last of that old thread of superhero like movie performances where it wasn't about getting like a 16 pack of abs and becoming like these monster humans who look like completely fucking yeah. ridiculous and, and you, unbelievable. You can tell that Tobey Maguire worked out probably for an entire year, but he probably didn't take a bunch of steroids. <laughs> yeah. And he looks like a nerd and he is a nerd and his performance really like proves to us that he is Spider-Man. It's not yeah. his physical demeanor. It's not it's not the action that he participates in. It's really like his you you can feel like his like tenderness come through the character. That's what I realized this time. Yes. And you feel it when he's in the mask and when he's out of the mask. And the thing yes. that I think is so special to me about this film and this whole trilogy is that Raimi understands that a good Spider-Man story has to also be a good Peter Parker story. And this film is an excellent Peter Parker story. MCU Spider-Man films are rarely good Peter Parker stories. They are always, you know, fun sort of Spider-Man adventures, but they really aren't particularly interested in Peter Parker, I don't think. And my real big issue <laughs> with <laughs> with Homecoming versus, say, this film, uh, this movie is a film in which Spider-Man, post 9-11, we should add, his main nemesis in this movie is a weapons manufacturer. Uh, and he's trying to stop this, you know, arms dealer uh, from wreaking havoc on New York. In Spider-Man Homecoming, the main uh, conflict involves Spider-Man defending the wealth of an arms dealer. The whole final fight is him just making sure that that guy's stuff doesn't get stolen. Uh, And I know a bunch of people are going to send us angry emails being like, well, there's superhero shit in there and it shouldn't be getting out to the public and Vulture killed a guy and that's not very nice of him. That's all true. I just think that the idea that you take Spider-Man, who is essentially like a working class hero the guy literally has like three jobs while he's pursuing a college degree and he's you know also a superhero and then you take that guy and you go you know what he should be doing is making sure that uh the richest weapons manufacturer in the world uh doesn't get robbed who am i you sure you want to know the story of my life is not for the faint of heart if somebody said it was a happy little tale If somebody told you I was just your average, ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. But let me assure you, this, like any story worth telling, is all about a girl. Should we go into our scenes? Let's do it. I had a really, really hard time finding a scene. I want you to go first, partially because I'm hoping that you pick one of the scenes I'm considering so that I can then cross it off and do a different one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i was like i i'm i'm currently like kind of still arguing internally about three different moments so i'm i'm curious to hear to hear what you have to say yeah i had a pretty hard time too and just to reiterate what we're doing here in this podcast is we're trying to unpack a film from the inside out we're trying to look at a scene that sort of defines the film as a whole and then work our way outward so when you look at this film, I think it's hard to find a single scene that really does it because so many of these scenes have become iconic. So many of them are so notice- noticeably Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. I mean, his Sam Raimi's stamp and Tobey Maguire's stamp, every frame of this film feels like so important to you know the idea as a whole. I mean, you have the you have the scene which is such a good fucking scene when he first places his hand on the wall. Yes, and the music starts. I mean, Danny Elfman scored. This is one of the best. I listen to this all the time. It's so good. It's so good. 
And it's funny that he also did the music for Tim Burton's Batman, which is, there's a connection there. But- there's another Burton-Batman connection, which is that the um, interior of the apartment that Harry and Norman Osborn live in was actually uh, also used in Burton's Batman. And the DP was like, we need to study that film to make sure we don't have a single shot that looks anything like that movie. Whoa. I mean, I love that connection because I think some of us sort of fantasize about an alternate reality where the superhero movies that we're getting are these like themey, director driven, experimental sort of character studies like Burton's Batman, like Spider Man. Like Ang Lee's Hulk, which hopefully we'll talk about sometime. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. (laughs) All of these films live in this really distinct, different world than the new, you know, wave of of these comic book movies, which, again, we don't hate, but it's, it's, uh, it's it's worth it to at least point out the differences. So, yeah, you have the scene when he places his hand on the wall and the music starts. Such a good piece of filmmaking um which then extends to when he's on the rooftop saying go web go which Which is like the funniest thing in the world and that's that that, that's such a sam raimi thing too like yes like that doesn't even like i don't even i I can't even imagine that this is this is raimi doesn't write this movie it's it's written by david kep and some other people did rewrites i think but like, I know that that wasn't in the script. I know they were on set and Sam Raimi was like, what if we tried this? You know, like, I just feel it in my bones that that's what happened. Yeah, it seems kind of like off the cuff sort of filmmaking, which is really fun for a movie like this and um, different than what we're seeing lately. I think there are iconic scenes in this movie like the upside down kiss is just such a memory from that time of our lives. Like I just remember that that thing being everywhere, like at the MTV movie. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna like, bring that up. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah, the big one with Jack Black, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think the, I mean, the bone saw scene is very iconic. The now. thing about bone saw is that he's ready. He's got you for three minutes. <laughs> three minutes of playtime. I mean, there's a ton of Willem Dafoe stuff in this movie, too, that feels very culturally significant. I mean, the I'm something of a scientist myself has been (laughs) memed to death now. Um, Yes. Just that But it is so good. I mean, he's so good in this movie. I also, I love that moment in particular so much because it's like, yeah, dude, we know. Like, (laughs) you think this guy doesn't know what Oscorp (laughs) is? Apparently, anytime, like, a minor thing happens in the company, it makes front page news in this version of of the world. So I'm pretty sure we know you're a scientist. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) But if I had to pick a scene, and and I, I wrestled with this for a little bit, I, I think it happens around an hour and 20 minutes in the film. And it's the scene I think you're expecting us to say. I think it's Peter sees Mary Jane outside of the diner and they have an exchange. He asks her to, he wants to buy her a burger and she rejects him because she's going to see Harry. And then, so Peter Parker gets rejected by Mary Jane. And then she walks into an alley and all of a sudden it becomes very like harrowing and scary and there's like a gang of men who are for some reason like acting like like wolves they're like howling at her and stuff um and then he becomes spider-man and sort of like the reverse happens like he rescues mary jane and then they have the upside uh, then it you know it starts pouring rain and and uh he kisses her upside down and it's very sexy and strange and and new and feels like the epitome of that time of our lives the early 2000s it's all there but i think it's that sort of reversal for me that happens where peter parker cannot succeed in his life but spider-man can and Mary Jane kind of loves both of them. This sort of dual thing going on that Sam Raimi, I think, is doing in not just this film, but a lot of his movies, I think, are like the duel of, uh, you know, the hero and the dark side. And in this movie, it's Spider-Man can't, I mean, Peter Parker can't really succeed 
as himself, but he is such a sincere and endearing person that people still like him for it. And then when he becomes Spider-Man, his endearing sincerity becomes punches and and beating up bad guys. And I think that is the moment of this film. It's the heart of this film. It, it's smack. It's almost right in the middle of it. It's the turning point of the film, I think. And that's my eye of the duck, I think. Why so interested? I'm not. You're not? Well, why would I be? I don't know. Why would you be? I better run, Tiger. You have a knack for getting in trouble. <laughs> you have a knack for saving my life. I think I have a superhero stalker. I was in the neighborhood. Do I get to say thank you this time? That's a good one. That's interesting. I, I, I think I know where I'm going to go in mine now because it's, it's almost a continuation of some of the ideas that you were sort of speaking about. But I think the thing that you are picking up on there and that I'll, I'll sort of further elaborate on is, again, this idea that a good Spider-Man story has to also be a good Peter Parker story. The thing that I love so much about this character is that he can never really have the life he wants as you know sort of he says at the end of the film this is my gift my curse so by having these powers he has to be spider-man he has to protect the city of new york and all the people that live there and all of that prevents him peter parker from from living the life he would want from from being with the woman he loves from from all of these, from, you know, from getting to work on time, from from studying for his exams, you know, none of that stuff can happen the way it's supposed to because he is Spider-Man. But then, of course, as you say, in, in your scene, when he is Spider-Man, you know, that's when people like him. That's when that's when he can he can achieve things, really, you know, do stuff. So my my eye of the duck is uh the what I, what i'm going to call uh the first hospital sequence so this is aunt may gets rushed into hospital after the green goblin has uh blown up her house and he uh peter parker arrives just as they're sort of you know sedating her and putting her to sleep and that feeds into and she screams out you know those eyes those those big yellow eyes and he has this moment where he realizes that the goblin knows who he is because that's why aunt may has been attacked and he doesn't know who the goblin is but the goblin knows who he is and the following scene which i'm just i'm looping this all together this is all one scene to me it's kind of cheating but it's okay uh, Mary Jane comes to check on uh, Aunt May and he and Mary Jane have this like heart to heart moment where she sort of explains I'm in love with Spider-Man and you have some this this following scene where Pete has to it's like this game of him trying to tell Mary Jane that he loves her without telling her that he loves her and without telling her that she, that he is Spider-Man it reminds me so much of You've Got Mail, actually. I'm trying not to spoil it because you haven't seen it, but <laughs> it's about a, two people that sort of fall in love over email, and in real life they don't know each other, but there reaches a point in the story where one of them knows that who the other person is and is trying so hard to basically tell them, like, it's me and I love you, but they can't get there. And... It's just such a compelling game to watch play out. And in this film, it's so much more loaded because she is saying, I love Spider-Man. He's like, I'm Spider-Man. Like, you love me, but he can't tell her. <laughs> and then to top it all off, at the end of that exchange, his best friend walks in who is dating this, you know, Mary Jane. And so you've got this awful, horrible love triangle as well which is all this other sort of pervading piece of the puzzle here where Peter just can't do anything right and can't get anything right because all of these relationships are all circling around this secret identity and because he can't be honest about any of it, it's all kind of falling apart. And there's the, the last part on that is like, he can't possibly tell Mary Jane who he is 
or even really consider the idea of being with her because a foot away from him, Aunt May is in a hospital bed because he is Spider-Man. The clearest example of like the the danger of his life is it, it's laying right at a bed. Yeah. Right at his, his, at his feet right there. Yeah. Will she be okay? She's going to be fine. She's been sleeping all day. Thanks for coming. Of course. But do you think it's true, all the terrible things they say about him? No, no. Not Spider-Man. Not a chance in the world. Has he mentioned me? Yeah. What'd he say? Uh, I said... Uh, he, he, he asked me what I thought about you. And what did you say? Uh, the, the great thing about MJ is when you look in her eyes and she's looking back in yours, everything feels not quite normal because you feel stronger. We're both reading this film from the inside of, of Peter and Mary Jane's relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, uh, and yes, definitely am, even though I don't really believe in my heart that this is a story about a girl, as the introductory oh, no. video, you know, would have you believe. I don't, I don't think so either, but it's definitely a story about their relationship. Or at least what that rela- relationship represents, which is yeah. the sort of, you know, the the duality of having to bear this responsibility while also trying to be a person. It's also like really fun to watch and compelling because we, I think we've all sort of forgotten like, oh yeah, like superhero movies used to be, this is kind of like a romance movie that's inside an action movie. Totally. And yeah. And today, like, I'm not going to say that, you know, all superhero movies are, are something different now, but I think generally speaking, most movies that fall into this genre today are, they are a genre known as comic book movie. I think that right. that genre has emerged and yeah. it's linked to like this like hero narrative and stuff. But I think we forget that, you know, these older movies were uh, the genre. I don't think had been really created yet. Like this no, is like I mean, a this character is, this study is the thing movie. That's this is building the genre. Yeah, and there's something so compelling about their relationship because I think we all forget that like movies used to have sexual undertones. They used to have great romances, and these these weird anesthetized MCU movies are completely are, sexless. Yeah, and it's. Yeah. I'm not saying that every movie needs to have like a sex scene or anything, but. This movie is 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 sexual and it is romantic and it is stimulating in that way and, and it works because it feels like it's part of like the humanity of these characters. Yeah. yeah, the the whole thing with Marvel heroes was this idea that they would be relatable like every people who happen to have superpowers. Un, you know, in contrast with sort of like the DC heroes who are all like gods and perfect uber men and such an integral part of being a relatable human being is that you would have romantic interests and that you would, yeah. you would act on them and that you would, you would follow them. How did we them. lose this? <laughs> I, I mean, I, th- I think uh, sanitization for the sake of avoiding controversy, probably. I mean, that's the only thing that really makes sense to me. Actually, I, I'm going to have to look up after the fact who said this and can add it back in, but I was following like a Twitter conversation the other day where essentially the... the, the conclusion it was an argument kind of about this like why is there no longer any sort of you know sex scenes in in movies anymore and it was basically the idea was like actresses and female directors sort of started saying we don't like the way you portray women and over sexualize them in films and the way you shoot them in sex scenes we think it's wrong and it should be reappraised and instead sure. of actually totally agree yeah and instead of actually listening to those people and reappraising the way that it's done and trying to improve upon it they just said okay fine no sex then <laughs> yeah i mean in hindsight looking at mary jane in this movie it's funny because in this this blu-ray box that i have here kirsten dunst is saying she was attracted to the role because mary jane is like strong in her own right and stuff and this sort of character that she plays in this film 
would not fly today. I mean, there's there's no. issues with her agency easily. Yeah, she she just randomly starts dating Peter's best friend, which comes yeah. out of nowhere. I mean, and <laughs> and you, to, speaking about the agency thing, I mean the the way that Harry basically like looks at him and is just like, well, you never made a move, as if to say the only thing preventing anyone from dating Mary Jane is whether or not they've made a move. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that being said their relationship is very attractive to a viewer it, it 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 has there's stuff about it that feels familiar it feels real mm-hmm. i love how peter parker like in the moment that you were describing i wrote that down too because he doesn't know the right thing to say like he is bad at at speaking yeah and that's so endearing because Especially again, we keep bringing this up, but like it's it's refreshing because these new films, these superheroes are always wisecracking know-it-alls who know like the perfect little smug comment to make, and they have all yeah. these great back and forths. Um, and a lot of the comedy comes from their sort of um, impressions of Robert Downey Jr. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> in this film, that is not the case. Like the comedy comes from Peter Parker being a little dweeb and like yeah. a lovable like. I care about people. I'm sincere. I really actually want to work hard for what I have and I want to protect people. And that's about as much as I can offer in terms of conversation. I don't really have much else besides like just being like a mopey guy trying to make his way through his days. Yeah. Also, can you imagine a modern superhero film in which you get a like five minute sequence where two people talk next to a hospital bed? And they'd like talk about the no. interiority of like a relationship. No, I don't think so. And that's not to say that like we've lost something in our comic book movies. Cause I do think they're doing some cool stuff. They're doing a lot of cool stuff and they're fun. Like there's, there's just fun, no yeah. substitute for fun. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I can't, I can't like, I have, again, we're not going to open the can of worms. I have strong thoughts and feelings on what the, continued proliferation of this genre has done to the yeah. state of filmmaking and distribution but sure. i think listeners by now can get a vibe of like where our yeah where our allegiance is at this but point you can't deny the fact that they're just a good time they're a good time oh, at yeah. the movies they are. you know they're all and they're probably always gonna be there is a feel there's a feeling in these mcu movies that they have like cracked the code yeah and in this film specifically and in its sequel which is like an astounding movie that's yeah. somehow even better than this and just so fucking great i don't think the code has been cracked just yet yeah and it works to their advantage i think because sam raimi is doing weird stuff yeah like really weird over-the-top strange stuff that i love to see there's a moment towards the end where i think it's after the bridge sequence when there's randomly just a suit, they just randomly superimpose the Green Goblin's face like over a cross dissolve. And it's, it, it's there to like, it's like a thematic signal. There's yeah. no real like narrative thing happening there. It's like a theme thing. And I think we kind of have lost some of that. You don't see stuff like that unless it's like some fucking dream sequence or unless it's all like perfectly you know told to the viewer of like what the hell is going on we get it if we see a flash of the green goblin and then we see toby Maguire waking up it's not as if he was dreaming about green goblin and there's some like multiverse or something yes i think you're i think you're definitely right about that and yeah just about this sort of more i don't know classical nature to it is that is that how we should describe it i don't know but there is i don't know what the word is yeah i mean it's definitely classic yeah. I don't know if it's classical filmmaking. But there is perhaps maybe a classiness to all of it, I guess. Maybe yeah, that's I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean the the web slinging, the web the web swinging sequences too. Even today with the effects and everything, yeah. whatever they did, it it really holds up. It yeah, really surprisingly looks... well. And and actually yeah. I ended up I watched this on the 4K Blu-ray and then I wanted to watch yeah, it with too. commentary and the commentary was only available on the regular Blu-ray. And you would think that the effects would look worse on the 4K disc where you've got, you know, much more information on screen and, you know, it's just harder to hide bad work when you're watching it with that kind of clarity. And it actually looked far better 
on the 4k remaster i thought than on the uh on the standard blu-ray um which i mean i think we can this stands the test of time like we can yeah we can confirm right it it holds up (laughs) not everything when they do like a fully cg version of spider-man where it's you know he's and he's flying through the air and whatnot that stuff doesn't always hold up but they've done such an excellent job compositing that cg character with real practical camera motion and in oftentimes practical environments that it feels like all of a piece and the music is there in the right places doing the right things so that all of that comes together to present something that holds up over time because the emotionality is there and because the thing the camera is doing is selling the move whereas if you were doing a cg spider-man in a cg environment i with a digital you know virtual camera moving through it i don't really think you get the same feeling yeah i mean the perfect example of that is when he first climbs a wall and you know Mm -hmm. we can all tell that he's probably just on like a sideways yeah of course he's he's just crawling across a yeah but the moment he touches the wall the danny elfman music kicks in which is so good and Tobey Maguire seems sincerely excited and amazed. And this character has been eating shit the whole film. And now like he has this look on his face that not that he's going to become cool, but that he now has purpose in life. And the purpose is to help people. Yeah. And he's having, he's like having the time of his life, just crawling what is very obviously just on the floor. <laughs> But between the direction and the sound and Tobey Maguire's performance, it's all coming together to give us this very kind of, I mean, there's a magical quality about this movie. 100%. One other scene I want to talk about. This is not. I'm not yeah, gonna. Really. I'm not gonna call this like a secondary eye of the duck. But there is one more scene I want to talk about. One more moment, and I. I just feel like we we can't not talk about it. And that is the moment during the um, bridge fight where wow. all of the New Yorkers on the bridge start throwing shit at Green Goblin. Oh, it's so good. It is the best, and I think the the thing that that scene really did for me on this viewing was again sort of point out some of why I love this film so much and and why it sort of holds up for me and one of those things is just quite simply the fact that the stakes of this film are really actually quite low and by comparison to modern superhero affair it feels incredibly quaint really this is just a movie about spider-man being a hero in New York for New York. His identity is tied to the city. And a thing I love about the character in that regard is that his powers are inherently less useful outside of an environment like New York where there aren't (laughs) skyscrapers for him to be swinging off of. That's true. We see so much of him throughout this film as the sort of friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. You know, he's just, he's helping everyday New Yorkers for the most part, you know, he's stopping stuff going on at a bodega, he's stopping someone's car getting jacked, you know, things like that. And throughout the whole movie, you've got Jameson, who brilliantly played by J.K. Simmons, who is trying to make a whole narrative about Spider-Man actually being a villain and being bad for New York. And you have Goblin, who is saying to him, you know, these people are never going to love you you should join me and we can like destroy everything together. And he doesn't do that. He stays true to himself. He stays true to New York and New York has his back because of it. And I think that that is just such a perfect little beautiful thing that we can't not talk about. I think like the New Yorkiness of this movie is part of why it has resonated for so long. Yeah. And part of that is because 9-11 i think it's yeah the new york pride or the new yorkiness is there and the other thing that i told you about in the opening this memory that comes to mind about sam raimi's spider-man the other memory that always comes to mind is driving home 
from this movie with my parents and 9-11 having happened uh, months before. And, you know, for the first time, sort of feeling the clear and present danger of the world that we live in. Yeah. And seeing Spider-Man and saying to my parents, God, I wish there was a Spider-Man. I wish Spider-Man was real. Maybe actually we need a superhero, yep. which sounds so silly to say. And it sounds like, you know, over the top melodramatic, but I was a little kid and I didn't really understand. And I thought like the thing that could protect us was <laughs> Spider-Man. I mean, the movie um, makes a compelling argument for that, especially it you does. just witness an act of great terrorism. And here's a movie about uh, one person who defends an entire city from essentially a terrorist, you know? Yeah. And I remember my dad in the driver's seat saying, mm, yeah, uh, that, you know, maybe we do need a superhero. And then my mom on the passenger side, you know, turning her head to the side and trying to somehow convey to me that like that's not gonna solve what's going <laughs> on in the world like i was saying before that it sits on the timeline right next to 9 11 i yeah. think like and and us as adolescents becoming adults unfortunately that's always going to be tied to 9 11 so much of our lives are, are going to be but it's nice that we have this movie from that time to remember because that time was very confusing for all of us i think yeah and, you know, yeah, this, this film was, was written and, and produced before 9-11, but I think it is so telling that the enemy is a, is a weapons manufacturer trying to sell, you know, terrifying new weapons technology to the U.S. Army at a time when the U.S. Army is about to embark on a terrible, endless, you know, war. It's crazy to read it like that. And then and then to extend that reading into the MCU with Tony Stark being a weapons dealer himself who like fucking like crushes people in like Afghanistan. Yeah. Like, to read this movie and then zoom forward to see that it's such like a telling little like story about how America changed after yep. that event. And these two I mean Iron Man is, you know, the Spider-Man of of the next generation. Right. right. That that film, I mean. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr., John Favreau, it is so much like this film that Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire had a very specific interpretation of this hero that we've known for many years. These two guys, I don't know, what is it, a decade later, had a different interpretation that was completely linked to the time that the film was made. Just like this one was. Yep. I don't know what that is of the past few years. Like what's the what's the new big blockbuster that t continues the story of America? Yeah, if we're looking at it like that, what's the end of this story, I wonder? Huh. I don't know if maybe it ends with the death of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a uh, a TV show on Disney+. Plus. Um, <laughs> I think it's Luke Skywalker appearing at the end of Mandalorian looking like a PS2 cutscene. <laughs> yes, that's the conclusion of the of the story of America. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing that I needed to bring up is there is a perfect scene. It's not an eye of the duck scene, but it is a perfect scene with J.K. Simmons when Tobey Maguire says that he wants a job. Oh, yeah. And, and J. Jonah <laughs> Jameson is like, this. no job, freelance. It's the best thing for, a, kid thing for a guy your age. <laughs> and then he says, meat. I'll send you a big box of Christmas <laughs> meat. Yeah. All of us who have worked as freelancers and stuff in this state of media and everything. It's just so funny. It's too good. He says that. <laughs> too good. What about you? Any, any, any final words? Yeah, I'll just say this film came with two commentary tracks. One of them with Raimi and a producer um, that's weirdly like intercut with also like a secondary commentary between Kirsten Dunst and another producer. And Raimi spends the entire commentary track just going like, oh, so in this scene, I really got to thank this person who worked really hard on this element. And that's really nice of him. I'm, I think it's amazing that he took the time to record two hours of himself thanking each individual crew member on the film. Really, really cool of him to do that. 
offered no insight into basically into like how the film was made or like why he did certain things um which i found deeply infuriating especially as i was trying to you know do research for the show but there is a secondary commentary track which is toby Maguire and jk simmons and they're just kind of like riffing and doing bits and having a good time but i'll say the the two best tidbits from it were they were talking about you know how fun it was to work with sam raimi and jk simmons was like yeah you know i always describe sam as like a pretty intelligent (laughs) nine-year-old such a perfect description of what this film feels like yeah it's made by a really smart (laughs) nine-year-old oh i think that does it for sam raimi's spider-man all right Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you guys. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. Listen to us on all your favorite podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google, and more. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero. That's Dominic with an I-C-K keep up with my writing about film television video games and everything else i write about on esquire.com and you can find me on all social media at adam vol that's v-o-l-e or you can watch my films at adamvolerich.com v-o-l-e-r-i-c-h our theme song snowflake is written by jesse lewis and comes from his album atticus you can find out more about jesse at jessielewismusic.com and our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at society6.com slash Francesca Volrich. And next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.